If you'd like to turn in your, your Bible, your lap Bible, to Psalm 139. So you can follow along with me as I read aloud. Psalm 139, for the choir director, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, Father, we humbly bow before you this morning. Lord, as we look upon this wonderful text, this beautiful song, Lord, Lord, we see the glory of God. We see your transcendence, your wisdom, your knowledge, your presence, your power, your holiness, your righteousness, your judgments. Father, indeed, there is none like you. Lord, I ask you this morning, Father, that you would strengthen me as I teach. May the words be clear. May the words, Father, honor you and glorify you. 
Lord, may the gospel be at work in the hearts of men. Lord, may your spirit be at work through your word this morning to transform and change our lives, to change us, that we would mirror you closer, Lord, that we would be like Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our champion, our King. Lord, I ask that if there are any here with us this morning, Lord, who have yet to come to saving faith in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, Lord, that you would draw them to your son in faith. And Lord, even as a result of this teaching, we would know you and love you more and know one another, love one another more. We ask this in your name. Amen. One of my heroes in the faith, one of my favorite theologians, pastors, teachers is R.C. Sproul. And he has said that everyone is a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Maybe as you're sitting here this morning, you may not have thought of yourself as a theologian. But before you quickly dismiss it or even disagree with that, I want you to consider what he's saying here. Everyone is a theologian because we all have some view of who God is. You may not be a theologian in a professional sense with a capital T, but no doubt you are a theologian with a lowercase t. We all have thoughts about God and who he is. And this is an important thought. When we think about God, We want to be accurate in our thoughts about him. And so indeed, I would agree with R.C. that we all are theologians. So the question isn't whether we are one. The question is whether we're a good one or a bad one. Theology is inescapable. A.W. Tozer is famously quoted as saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this is such a helpful estimation. I mean, this this is the matter that makes all the difference in life and all the difference in death. Theology matters. Theology, I believe, could be distilled down into meaning thinking about God. Thinking about God, studying him, thinking about him, wondering about him. Yet when we think about God, what are we thinking about? How do we determine who he is? What he does, what he is like, what he requires of us? I think it's important for us to recognize that it is possible that we can study and learn about God. It's very clear from Scripture that God has made himself known to man and knowable to man. But there are also limits to our knowledge of God. Gleaning from a a book called Biblical Doctrine, it was edited by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. It says this, because God has revealed the fact of his existence in Scripture, he has given humans statements by which they can have at least some knowledge of him. The Bible makes God knowable to humans to the extent that The content of the Bible reveals truth about him. Scripture teaches that man may know God truly, yet not exhaustively. In the classical terminology, God is truly knowable, but not exhaustively comprehensible. I mean, we see that tension in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in my favorite chapter of all Scripture, John 17, in verse 3, in his high priestly prayer, remember this is the night before he would go to the cross, praying for his disciples 
and all that would come to know him through the message of the disciples, he says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Eternal life is what? Knowing God and knowing who Jesus is. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. What we see from Scripture is that we can know God truly, but not exhaustively. As some would say, God is infinite, but he is simultaneously intimate. Theology matters. What you believe, where you go, who you associate with, how you speak, what you say, how you spend your time, all of this is intimately intertwined to your knowledge of God. A man said, show me what a man thinks about God and I will show you his path in life. What you believe about God, isn't that true? It really does determine the course that is set before you in life. We don't want to isolate theology to the ivory towers. Theology shouldn't make us so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good to anyone. Theology should keep us very well grounded, especially in this life as we live as people of God. It should change the way we live. It may start in the ivory towers, but it should eventually lead us to dirt roads. Our theology should neither be all head and no heart or all heart and no head. We need a mixture of both. We need to understand God for who he is and rightly understand him. But this should be distilled down into bite-sized pieces that we can understand and treasure in our heart that changes the dynamic of who we are as people and what we do and where we go and how we live. This song that sits in your lap this morning is a masterpiece of theology and practicality. It is head and heart, God and man, infinite and intimate. This morning, we will look intently at David who is experiencing God in a very intimate and personal way. The psalm is centered around three of God's incommunicable attributes. And what that means, theologically speaking, is simply this. God has characteristics that he shares with people. And we get to be benefactors of those characteristics of God. But he has some characteristics that are solely for him and him alone. And in those, we, we cover our mouth and we just say, there is no one like you. Well, this psalm is centered around three of his incommunicable attributes. His omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. And David's very personal experience with each of them. We need to take theology and make it personal. We should be applying it to our lives day by day. So let's do that very thing this morning. And let's first look at the God who knows me. You can say that of yourself. The God who knows me. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and... Know me. Hmm. 
The omniscience of God, I'm going to be gleaning again from Biblical Doctrine, that book that I mentioned earlier. In speaking of God's omniscience, it says this, God's omniscience is his perfect knowing of himself. All actual things outside of himself and all things that do not become reality in one eternal and simple act. In other words, God knows everything. God knows everything actual, right? He knows everything possible. He knows what would have happened, young man, if you would have walked up to that girl and asked her to dance. But you didn't do it. He could tell you exactly how your life would have went from that point on. He could tell you, young lady, what would have happened if you would have said yes. God knows everything. He knows every score of every football game, every basketball game. He has every thought that you have ever thought in your mind. He could readily tell you without any effort at all. He knows all things. And there is a baffling, entertaining, even amusing quality to the idea of God's omniscience, isn't it? As long as we think of it in relation to things outside of ourselves, but once we aim the all-seeing eye of God back to our own hearts and recognize the intimate and personal qualities of God's all-knowingness, it becomes much more serious, much more alarming, even possibly threatening, extremely convicting. And yet for David, it was quite comforting. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. David is personalizing this beautiful doctrine this beautiful theology of God that he knows all things and he's making it personal to himself. You have searched me and know me. That word searched is a word that, that means to explore a country. Imagining that God has searched and explored you. That he knows everything there is to know about you. Verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, the Lord knows everything that you do. He knows when you sit down to take a rest. He knows when you rise up. Not only does he know everything you do, but he knows everything that you think. You understand my thought from afar. I mean, this is very impressive, especially considering that far too many times I don't even understand my thoughts. I don't even understand what motivates my thinking, why I do the things that I do, why things come out of my mouth that I say. I can't say that I fully even understand myself, but God understands my thoughts from afar. They're simple to him, easy for him. He knows every moment of your heart for all eternity. Verse three, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Not only does God know everything I do and everything I think, he knows everywhere I go. He could hit the rewind button and backtrack all of your steps, all the way back to the day that you were born. You could rewind your life just like that. He knows everywhere you're at. Notice lying down, rising up. Lying down is kind of a, a picture of that time where you lie down to rest or possibly even thinking of the nighttime, private, he, he sees you in private. He sees you in public. He sees you when you are at rest. He sees you in the day. He sees you at work. He sees every waking hour and he watches you as you sleep. 
This word to scrutinize gives the idea of sifting through something to discover something that is hidden. We come to realize right through this psalm that there is nothing hidden. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. He knows all there is to know. Everything about you. Verse four, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. (laughs) Some of you are up at night wishing you never would have said what you said, right? He knows everything you do, everything you think, everywhere you go, everything you say. He knows every word that has ever come out of your mouth. He knows every word that you will say for the rest of your life. He even knows what's waiting in the queue, right? There's not a single syllable that you have uttered that is hidden from the omniscience of God. Friends, you are known completely by the all-seeing, all-knowing, eternal God. Verse 5 and 6, You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, he says. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. David concludes here, that the Lord knows him personally and thoroughly. David's response is amazing, isn't it? It's an exaltation of God. He glorifies God in his mind and and ultimately he's exalting him. Such knowledge is too wonderful for him, too high for him to attain. This personalized view of the omniscience of God as David is acknowledging God knows everything about himself, his person, his being, enclosed behind and before. There is nothing about David that God doesn't know and doesn't already know. This drives David to worship the Lord. He worships him. He throws his hand up and he says, this is too wonderful for me. It's it's, it's hard to imagine it all, isn't it? Because we are so limited. I got to be honest, I'm telling you, the older I get, I have a harder time remembering things. I'm thankful that I have my wife. She doesn't forget anything. Thankfully. And that's a good thing. But yet... Even her knowledge pales in comparison to the knowledge of the almighty God. He knows everything. David says this is wonderful. He knows the Lord knows everything about him and he says it's wonderful. (laughs) That's amazing. This tells me that David has has a close, intimate relationship with God. Steve Lawson says, he who sees, I'm sorry, uh, he not only sees you, but he sees into you and he sees through you. Sometimes we can shield what we're thinking from others. Sometimes we can hide things from people, but not with God. He sees it all. The one who knows you the best loves you the most. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, my hope is that as we think about this and personalize this beautiful omniscience of God, that we would respond like David, that we would worship him and say, this is good. This is wonderful. This is beautiful. It's too high. Lord, you should be exalted. But there was a man in the New Testament who had quite a different response to the omniscience of the Lord. His name was Peter. 
in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. If you remember, Jesus got into his boat and he taught from his boat. And then afterward, he says this, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. You kind of get this idea that Peter thinks that he knows more than Jesus here, right? He's a fisherman. Jesus isn't a fisherman. He's been fishing all night. He didn't catch one fish, right? So he's going to do what Jesus says, but he knows he's not going to catch any fish is kind of what's happening here. That's the backdrop. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. They caught so many fish that the boats could hardly hold them and the boats were beginning to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he wasn't rejoicing over it. He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I'm sure Peter got to thinking and he began to realize that if Jesus knows everything there was to know that was happening beneath the surface of the water that we couldn't see and he couldn't see, that he, was, he probably came to think that Jesus knows everything beneath the surface of Peter. He knows everything there is to know about him. This caused Peter to acknowledge that he was a sinful man. And he confessed that to the Lord. You see, friends, there is no rationale in concealing anything from the Lord because he already knows it. He already knows it. Maybe you remember if you you have a child or very early stages of, of, you know, bringing a baby into the home and as you're interacting with them, they, they have to learn something called object permanence. Okay. So like if a little baby has a ball and you take the ball and put it behind your back, they think the ball is gone. And what do they do? They start crying, but you bring the ball back. There it is again. Right. They don't realize that the ball is just behind your back, that the ball doesn't disappear. The ball is not gone. I think when we try to hide things from God, that's probably what it looks like for him, right? He watches us and we go like this. Maybe he can't see me, right? We're trying to hide things from the one who knows all things. So if you are sitting here this morning and the thought of God knowing every detail about your life and everything that you've ever done and everything that you have ever thought or said, every place you've ever gone, the secret things that no one else knows, and you're feeling threatened by God this morning, by his perfect and personal an intimate knowledge of all there is to know about you. It may be possible to believe that you've not yet experienced his forgiveness through the cross of his son. This reminds me of a Proverbs. You see, everything that we conceal, God will reveal. But the things that we reveal to God... He will cover. Proverbs 28, 13 says this. He who conceals his transgressions 
will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. My friends, this beautiful, personal, high and lofty theology as we look at God intently and certainly the all knowingness of God, his omniscience should cause us to come forward, to come forward with the things that we have hidden, come forward and confess these things to the Lord. He knows everything anyway. He knows all things. And yet he welcomes you to come to him. Just tell me what you have done. And he stands eagerly waiting to forgive. He is a merciful God. A loving God. Don't delay. If that's you this morning, don't delay. Right here as you're sitting here in your seat. If there is something there. You just right now in your own mind, in your own heart, confess those things to the Lord. Go to the Lord. He knows them anyway and seek his mercy. The forgiveness that is in Christ who died and bore that very thing that you are concealing in your heart. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf so that you could be the righteousness of God through him. Well, not only is he the God who knows me, but he is the God who is with me, who is with me. We're going to look at another one of his incommunicable attributes. And starting in verse 7 of Psalm 139, David says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? David begins this section by asking a rhetorical question. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? The answer is implied, right? Nowhere. I cannot go anywhere that God isn't already there. He says in verse eight, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea. David seems to be pulling out his compass here for us. He's explaining that no matter what direction you go, whatever direction is is possible for you to go, and he's using this rhetorical device of these polar opposites, right? Heaven and the grave. He's also talking about the wings of the dawn. And and what does that mean? Think if you could ride on the, the very sunlight that shoots across the rising of the sun. And where does that happen? In the east. And then he says, in the remotest part of the sea, from David's vantage point, that's more than likely the Mediterranean Sea, To the west. And this rhetorical device of these polar opposites is not just talking about those two places, but everything in between. He says north, south, east, west, all over, anywhere possible. Behold, you are there. You are there. Can a man escape the Lord? No. Did you ever talk to someone that says, oh, I was running from God? Well, how, how do you actually run from God? <laughs> right? <laughs> you can't run from him. God's um, omnipresence gives reason for God's omniscience, right? He knows everything. He was there to see it all. He is the eyewitness of everything that has ever taken place. He witnesses all things in real time. He never has to watch a rerun. He sees it all. It's easy for us to think of God's presence in heaven 
I think, as we, we think about if I ascend to heaven, you are there. And even here on all the parts of the earth, I think it's even though we don't see him, I think it's it's easy to to believe that he is here present everywhere here. But consider that God's judicial presence to punish is in hell. It's very much present in hell. Listen to the American Reformed theologian James Montgomery Poyce. He says, in fact, the thing that makes hell so terrible is that it is run by God. Hell is a terrible place, not because God is not there, but because he is there and he is present to punish. Man can never escape from God. No matter where you are, he is there. We can't flee from him. We can't hide from him. We can't outrun him. He is here now. He will be with us on our way. And when we arrive at the place where we believe that he may not be, he is there waiting for us. He is everywhere. Again, gleaning from the book Biblical Doctrine, omnipresence, the omnipresence of God is God is perfectly present with himself, transcending all limitations of space and yet present with every point of space with all that he is. So I think that God is, you know, his left toenail is not right here and his eyebrow is somewhere right in Orion. He is fully present everywhere possible. He is fully there in all of his power. Verse 10, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. David again is making this truth of God, this high lofty doctrine of God personal. And he says, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. David acknowledges that the hand of the Almighty will always be there because he's always with him. He is present with him in all of his situations. Everything that he goes through, the Lord is with David. Friends, he is with you. He is with you. Verse 11 and 12, if I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. (laughs) The darkness can't hide him and it can't hide you from him. He sees just as well at night as he does in the day. And that's a that's a glorious thought, right? For our children when they're afraid of the dark. I like to explain that. Darkness and light are the same to go. He sees just as well. He is here. He is always present. And he loves us. And he is all powerful. And he is good. And so the presence of God can be a tremendous comfort for us all. A wonderful encouragement that tomorrow is scary, right? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen 10 years from now? Right? That's a scary thought. What's going to happen? We don't know. But I know God is there and he will be with me there. It reminds me of Psalm 23, verse 3 and 4. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's going to have his rod and his staff 
And he's going to correct you and lead you and help you wherever you go, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us are in it right now. Some of us, it was probably hard to even get here this morning. And you had to encourage yourself to get up and come here to hear the word of God because the heaviness of life is bearing down upon you and you feel like you are in a dark and dangerous time. Friends, if you have Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, he is right there with you. He is your shepherd. He is leading you and guiding you through it. And that is a great, great comfort. Amen. What a great theological truth, the omnipresence of God. He is the divine God of heaven and earth. And how personal it is for us to consider that he is always with us no matter what, no matter where we go. The great shepherd king will always be there to comfort you. So if you're in the valley right now, I want you to look for him and trust him and cry out like David is here, right? This is wonderful. I'm not alone. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to be alone, right? Because God is always with you. You're never alone. You always have him. He's always right there. Hebrews chapter 13 Verses five and six, this is such a beautiful promise, right? Midway through verse five, he says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The Lord is with me. He's always with me. And this is the personal side of theology and doctrine. It shouldn't be dry. It should be rich and springing with life because we personalize it and we recognize that it's more than just mere words on a page. This is a personal relationship that God has with us fallen sinful people. He knows everything you've done. He was there when you did it. Go to him. He is the merciful Savior. He came to lay down his life, to die in your place. It also reminds me of Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in times of trouble. Also, Jesus said this, Matthew 28, when he gave the Great Commission, and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You are never alone. He is with you. And again, we're watching a man, right, who knows the Lord. David was the shepherd boy who knew God and he knew him and he loved him. And all of these thoughts were a wonderful joy for David to ponder. And what an incredible psalm that we get to read. This man's thoughts and the Spirit's work through him. But again, the presence of God may not be comforting to all who are here this morning. The thought of the presence of God, that he is there and he has seen all, again, is alarming to you. I want you to go to him. I want you to uncover your nakedness right before him. Be transparent. He sees all. Go to him. 
First Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That passage definitely brings God near. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and he's attentive to our prayers. He looks to us. He waits to hear from us. He's ready to act and help us. But his very face is against those who do evil. He's also right there. It's like the thief that he does he wasn't able to see the camera, right? He's on surveillance. And it's real easy to, to identify who this guy is. He thinks no one sees. All of a sudden, there's a knock at his door, right? The police are there. Because everything that he thought he was doing, hidden from the public eye, was clearly seen on tape. My friends, God sees everything. Not only is he the God who knows me and the God who's with me, but he is also the God who made me. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And this is speaking of the power of God, the omnipotence of God in a very personal way, right? As he talks about the creation of man and certainly David himself thinking of how God made him. Again, pulling from the book Biblical Doctrine, God's omnipotence or omnipotence describes his ability to do anything consistent with his nature. In other words, God is able to do all of his holy will. There are things that God cannot do, right? There are some things, right? He cannot die and he cannot lie, but he's able to do all his holy will. He is powerful and he can do all. And David is highlighting the immense power of God by describing how he was fearfully and wonderfully made. In verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Once again, David is is making reference to the very beginnings of his form from the very moment of his conception. And this within his own mother's womb. The power of God to make us. The all-powerful, almighty God finally creating the psalmist's inward parts. How intricate and delicate, how tiny. You think about a human embryo, so fragile, so tiny, yet exploding with information and sophistication. Woven together, layer upon layer, the heart of the man who was known as a man after God's own heart was powerfully and delicately brought forth by God himself. This is an incredibly personal look at the power of God. Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. My unformed substance, this is interesting. This could possibly be referring even to the very DNA that was brilliantly coded by the intelligent designer himself to construct this shepherd boy who would become king, the shepherd boy who would defeat Goliath of Gath. 
In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This is incredible, unfathomable power. God makes us and he forms us. And even before we take our first breath, everything that we will ever do is written in his book. No man gets to read that book. We get to live it out. Verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here David is exalting the immensity of God as he's measuring his thoughts. He tries to fathom the sum of God's thoughts. He says they're outnumbering the sand. And David says that his thoughts are precious to him. Would that we all would cherish the thoughts of God like David. And this is indeed an immense and personal view of the power of God. Theology matters. And we are all theologians. Theology and doctrine should be springing with life. Personal, intimate, real, close. Not mere omniscience. Alexander McLaren says this. Not mere omniscience, but a knowledge which knows him altogether. Speaking of David. Not mere omnipresence, but a presence which he can nowhere escape. Not mere creative power, but a power which shaped him fill and thrill the psalmist's soul. I mean, these are exhilarating thoughts by David. He is erupting with joy, with bewilderment, with praise. Well, how do we apply this? I want to give you two, two applications. And the nice thing is I didn't really have to think much about them because David already gave them to me. If we look at verses 19 through 22 and then 23 through 24, how do we apply this? Making theology personal. What do we do with this? Well, the first thing is shut the door on evil, right? Shut the door on evil. God sees all. He knows all. He's with you all everywhere. And he is all powerful. So shut the door on evil. Let's look at Psalm 139, 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And this section mirrors what's known as an imprecatory psalm, right? Where the, psalm, the psalmist is calling God to act and to respond to wickedness, and, and all, a lot of times to personal wickedness, someone pursuing after the psalm writer. I think when we really think about this, We have to understand this, that to love something is to simultaneously hate what opposes it, right? If you love your daughter, you're going to hate a dog that is running after her to attack her. And you may love dogs, (laughs) but you're not going to love that dog because you love your daughter. I think David here is expressing a hatred of everything that God hates. And there should be a desire in our own heart to be like David here. That we should affirm what is good and right 
and make our allegiance to God. It reminds me of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. David is aligning himself in response to God. This high transcendent view of God that he is very much made personal to him in his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. And he is aligning himself up with him. Loving what God loves, hating what God hates, and asking God to respond to evil in this world. Paul commands of all of us to come out from the world, come out from among them and be separate. I mean, this does not mean that we're to hate our neighbor who does not love Jesus. We need to recognize that we were once just like him if we did not have faith in him. But now we do. At one point, we needed someone like ourselves to go to him, to go to us and share the gospel, right? but yet we should align ourselves up with the holiness and righteousness of God. So shut the door on evil. The second application is open the door of your heart to God. Verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. These words, these words, search me and know me. Notice that they're bookends to this psalm. It starts out with these words and it ends with these words. And it may seem strange to you to see David making a request for God to search him and know him, especially after he so clearly affirmed and declared that he already has. But I think what we see David doing and what David is saying is God search me and know me and bring all things to the surface so that I may see myself like you see me, that I can forsake the things that are not right within me or anything that would come between you and me. David is expressing his gratitude toward and cooperation with the God who leads him with his right hand upon him. David is laying down the welcome mat at the threshold of his heart. And he's welcoming God to come in and to search him and to know him and to reveal anything in him that shouldn't be there. Friends, that is the way that we need to respond to theology. They're not just words to memorize and impress people with. They're real, intimate personal truths about God, a God who is incredibly infinite and intimate. And I want you to know that he stands there at the door and he wants to come in. Do you have it bolt locked? Or do you have a welcome mat? Do you have it surveillanced and locked? Or do you have balloons and confetti and a, you know, a warm loaf of bread baking in the oven for him? Are you ready for God to welcome him in? Friends, let's be like this shepherd theologian. He's a good theologian. Theology matters. We're all theologians. But may we open the door of our hearts to the infinite and intimate God that he would lead us in the everlasting way. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we 
come before you this morning in thankfulness and gratitude, Lord, that you are even mindful of me, mindful of us, of any of us. Lord, you know everything, and so you have no doubt seen every sinful act that, that we have done on this earth. Lord, I, I beg you, Lord, that you would draw your people to you this morning through the gospel of your son. Lord Jesus, you came to this earth to bear our sin, to take those things that we are so ashamed of and to publicly place them upon yourself and experience the excruciating, humiliating death of the cross on our behalf, where the very wrath of God was poured out upon you. You drank it down for us, Lord. There's nothing that we can hide from you. There's no place we can go where you are not there. Who could stand against the power of God? I pray that we would all willingly surrender our hearts to you, welcome you in to search us and know us, to know our anxious thoughts, to pull anything that should not be there, Lord, and lead us in the everlasting way. Pray these things in your name. Amen.